All right, so tonight we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3. If you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Peter chapter 3. As we're going forward in Peter, we know that Peter has written those he's called the pilgrims uh, with that Jewish background but Christian faith who've been dispersed and that through their various trials that have grieved them, their faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, is being found to the praise and the honor and the, the glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that those various trials that we go through produce fruit and life in us. Or as we like to say, you learn more from losing than you do winning. And uh, heartaches and tribulations will produce maturity, ideally, if we're trusting in the Lord as we go through them. Now, as we progressed in this epistle, uh, in chapter 2, Peter made very clear with the Holy Spirit, like that position we have in the family of God, that all these promises are ours through our faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus is our chief cornerstone, and we have that in our personal life, and then collectively together as a church, we're living stones brought together, and we function together in the local church, and we grow and we prosper. So, but with the family of God, we were not people of the promise, but now we are people of God, verse 10, chapter 2 said, and we've obtained mercy, those who had not previously had mercy. So then that exhortation came as sojourners to just just to be wise and, and see things as pilgrims passing through in this life, that the real home is heaven and the place of the Lord. So from there, this vertical relationship, Peter went into this whole idea of the horizontal relationships with authorities in life, that the will of God to do good in our society, to honor all people, to love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king, to be able to submit to authority at work and things like this. And it, it was good stuff. And then the back end of chapter 2 talks about how Christ was an example of suffering when he didn't do wrong and that it's a good example for us that he did it for our salvation and we can learn from that and, and apply that in our own lives when things that are unjust and unfair happen to us. So that's what we've covered and we left off with that phrase that we're, by whose stripes we're healed and for we were like sheep going astray but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. So chapter 3 verse 1 says this, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, or we might say reverence as well. So this is one of those passages where we get details for wives in marriage. And we've, we see this in Ephesians 5 and briefly in Colossians as well. We see all kinds of marriage things throughout the Bible, uh, Old Testament, New Testament as well. But here we just get this basic instruction in the human experience for wives, understanding the role. We, we see in Corinthians that God is ahead of Christ, Christ is ahead of man, man's ahead of woman, and the woman came from man, and the two are one. The man's incomplete without the woman, and vice versa. We're interdependent. The two become one. That's why whenever I ever say anything to a man who's married, I consider what I've shared with him to be uh, information to his wife because the two are one. It's important to understand that. So if we're addressing the pastors and we say this, it, we all know that that includes your wife because God sees you as one. Two become one. So that the context here is that wives be submissive to your own husbands that even if they do not obey the word. So this is women who are unhappily married. This is, or it would be presumed, uh, but women who are married to men who do not obey God's word, which is tough. It's, I can only imagine it's hard enough being married to the sons of Adam when they do obey God's word. How much harder when they do not, right? So it's just, it is what it is. And God has order. 
It's important. We talked about this last week with even like paying taxes. I don't have a problem with paying taxes. I declare everything there is to declare. I declare if I get paid a couple hundred dollars for doing a wedding or a funeral or whatever, I declare it. I mean, to me, it's no big deal because it's like I don't give an account for the taxes. The president does or Jerry Brown or whoever. You know, it's like I don't worry about stuff like that. I just render to whom uh, taxes are due and honors due, and then it's up to the Lord. I've learned as I've gotten older not to get bent out of shape over who's in office or not in office because they all get removed and someone else comes in anyways. And people fret over all kinds of things that don't matter. So for me, it, it, that whole concept that we see in the Bible, and for you, obviously, is that we see under authority in authority. The Roman centurion recognized that with Jesus. I see that you are a man in authority and you're under authority, and you say do this and do that, and people do this and do that. And so you don't need to come to my house. You just say it so, and it'll be. Because he recognized that Jesus was under the authority of the Father. And as a Roman centurion over 100, he understood that idea. He was under authority in the Roman government, in Roman military, and over authority. So it's pretty straightforward. Wives, be submissive to your own husbands. That some, even if they do not obey the word, without a word may be won by your conduct. Now, that looks really good in writing, doesn't it? Like, that would work. But I've been in ministry for 30 years, and I know that that obviously doesn't always work at all. But you know what is interesting? I was out surfing for only the second time this year on Sunday. And um, a young man who's now an adult who used to go to Calvary schools, in the current there, the south swell current, comes, we go float miles, like, hey, Pastor Joey, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? And he's familiar with the church and actually been in the church. And we got on the story of how his father had done a full 180 with the Lord and become rock solid with the Lord and completely change in his disposition, his personality, his character. And I said, because I said, I just saw your parents recently. It's just amazing, like, what God did in your, in your father's life. You know, he's like, yeah, you just can't even believe it. You know, like, we all went, we were all affected in different ways negatively, speaking of the children. But God just did this amazing work in our dad, and then he did it in us at the same time. And it's it's. It's a full-on miracle, isn't it? I go, yeah, and of course I brought up my sister and what she's been through and being homeless and now being sober for a year and about to have all of her felon- felonies reduced to misdemeanors and all this kind of good stuff when your life's being rebuilt. But my point is this. This particular husband, I would have never, ever thought over 10 years ago this guy would ever turn around. We didn't, we didn't want him around this building. We considered him a threat. And... He, 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 you know, love hopes all things, love bears all things, but you have hope, but then you have an asterisk when you're in ministry. You have to, you know, your shepherds. I have hope with an asterisk, and we had hope and an asterisk. And a few years back, when this particular man had turned it around, he actually came here and he was like a completely different person. So I think of my sister being a completely different person, and I think of talking with this young man who's now an adult, talking about his dad being a completely different person, you know, once used abused alcohol horribly and stumbled all the kids and he no longer abuses alcohol and the kids have sobered up at least from what I understood and it's it's a it's a good story it's a good story today you know on on July 10th 2018 the story has a really good look to it and it made me happy right because you know like there's plenty of people that can drift by in a south swell current just go like dude I got like there's plenty of bad news there's plenty of men who abuse alcohol abuse their wives abuse their kids stumble their kids and never recover right I don't need to go looking for that. That's all over the place. But I rejoice when I hear the story of a man who actually did have his heart softened through his wife, actually. I mean, the wife is amazing. Just amazing servant. Humble, unassuming woman. And 
This young man even said, my mom is just incredible. She is just incredible. Dude, tell me about it. She makes our immediate list of top 10 Hall of Fame that we think of 30 years of ministry. Your mom makes the list and her perseverance for you kids and for how she was forgiving toward your father. A little 10-minute conversation, and then a set came, and the swirly currents came through Newport. And he's like, I got to go to work. I'll see you later. God bless you. And they just blackballed it, right? I was like, how edifying was that to come in and go sit with my daughter and Jacob and just like, wow, that was really encouraging to hear a praise report like that from the testimony of a son who was stumbled by a dad who did not submit to the word, who was verbally and even physically abusive to his wife, but to find in that case that that turned around. Now, we know the odds, we know in the human nature and human experience that doesn't always happen at all, but it can happen. And love bears all things, love hopes all things. It doesn't mean we have to subject ourselves, ladies, to physical, verbal, emotional abuse, but... We just never want to get to a place where you look at someone that you once loved very much and throw them under the bus and say they're hopeless. You would just never want to get to that place under any circumstance. You, you would still want to have empathy at that moment when you're tempted to think that way, that that person was created by God with a plan from God. And even though they're destroying that, that, that God is still able to do above and beyond all that we could think or ask. And I only look to my own sister and the turnaround that happened in her life. You know, when she went to a probation officer, the probation officer said, you know, we never see this happen. We just very rarely when we, you know, the judge reduces, you go to a court-appointed rehab and this and that. The odds are so astronomical that people fall out before a year and they just go back to Mesa prison or jail or whatever. And, they, and they're just in the system and they never break it. And they said, what you've done is just amazing. We want a good story and we want to believe God for a good story. So I would just say to all the ladies out there, everywhere who are serving the Lord. Don't lose heart. It doesn't mean, again, that you have to be put yourself in a place where you're abused, but don't lose heart. Forgiveness is the greatest equity on the planet. It's greater than, I think, even purity and um, suffering. I think forgiveness is the greatest equity we can have in our hearts toward others because it's certainly something that God puts a huge premium on and honors and recognizes, and it bears good fruit, too. So, in this case, the exhortation is that without a word, they can be won by the conduct. You know, and, and I'm going to move right past wives to just everyone in general in this room because I always read the word of God in application to me. And I look at this and I say, wow, okay, so this is the wife's under the husband's authority. I'm under authority. I'm under all kinds of authority before God. And if I don't like that authority, if I disagree with that authority, that doesn't change the fact that it's God-ordained authority. Does that make sense? We're all under all kinds of authority. All kinds of authority. Like, when, when you slow down because the motorcycle policeman turns around and everyone else slows down, you're under his authority. You're in the streets of Huntington Beach. He's a Huntington Beach police officer, and he has the authority of the law, and he's turning around to look at somebody for something, and we're subject to that authority, and we need to recognize that. We're even subject to the authority of the red arrow. Uh, or the stop sign. There's all kinds of authority that God would have a subject to. So looking at the principle of wives that can win their husbands who don't obey God's word, to that they can be an example to their husbands through their conduct without a word. Just think about that for a minute. To have a witness with authority that's above you that mistreats you that you 
have authority from the Lord as you're under his authority, that without a word by your conduct, God is honored and a witness is made. We're talking about here, in this case, the woman living in a marriage, in a covenant relationship with her husband, the woman without a word by her conduct, winning her husband to the Lord and taking that principle to any believer in any walk of life in a similar principle circumstance, that without a word, and don't we always want to get the last word in? That's where you grow as a person, by the way, in the Lord. When you realize you don't have to get the last word in. A soft answer turns away wrath. Any fool can, can prattle with the tongue. But when you can let things go and you don't have to get the last word in, that's just that's a sign of maturity in the Lord, for sure. It's a sign of maturity as a human being, but in the context, in the Lord. That, that they may be one. We're trying to win people. A wife is trying to win her husband, who is not a good husband, to the Lord through her conduct, how she responds or proactively acts without a word. And this applies to the workplace. This applies in society. That by our conduct, God will always honor the right behavior and the right conduct. If I were African-American and I felt that I was having my rights violated, and I grew up in the South, so I speak with authority, and if I felt, and I've been to South Africa during apartheid, and if I felt like my rights were being violated, I would still put my trust in the Lord, and I would honor as best I could the Lord in that situation. I think this is important to understand this principle that without a word and by our conduct, authority over us that does not obey God can be won by our humility and how we handle things. As a coach, I'm always trying to figure out how we're going to win. That's my job. All the coaching with the Olympic Committee and the Cohort 5 and all these things, it's my job to think how to improve and how to win. Isn't it interesting, the phrase here, that they may be one. Like, I talk about Nick Saban saying with Alabama football, they're always recruiting. You're recruiting, you're trying to win recruits. That's what made Pete Carroll so great as a coach. He could win a running back to come play at USC as opposed to play at LSU. You are, a, you're, you're selling something. And if you're selling grace and mercy and forgiveness and compassion, when people are giving you, you know, wrath, and anger and strife, you can win. You can win them, not by force, but by the exact opposite. This is how the kingdom of God is. It's flipped upside down. That's how it works in the kingdom. And talking to that young man in the water in Newport the other day just reminded me how his dad was one to the Lord. His dad was one to the Lord, not by being beaten into submission and if you had an opinion of someone that deserved a beatdown, you would say, you would be inclined to think he did. But that's not how he was one to the Lord. That's not what changed him. And that's what made him a broken man and a great husband that he is this day. What broke him and changed him was his humble wife picking up trash, forgiving him, serving others, and being gracious to him and to everyone around her and her world. And forgiving him and loving her kids and showing her kids what a wife should be like in the midst of a horrible situation with alcoholic abuse. That is how he was one. He wasn't won by force. He was won through humility and prayer and brokenness. 
And I look at that testimony in the water the other day, and I look at this passage, and I go right past the wives to me. What does this mean to me? How do I apply this? Because I want to apply this in my life as a 57-year-old man. I've been married 30 years. I've been married long enough to know that I'm just grateful my wife prays for me, loves me, and forgives me. I've been married long enough to know, like, I got a feeling the big flip's coming in eternity. I really do. I, I can't prove it. I just, you know, everything, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. You're faithful with this. Enter to the joy of your Lord and be entrusted with that. I've got a feeling that in eternity, there's just a really good payoff for those wives who are gracious and merciful with their husbands and forgive them. It makes sense, right? Because everything's crooked is made straight. I mean, there's no more tears or sorrow. So you just got to know in eternity for all the wives that dealt with and handle difficult marriages and these things that there's just got to be great reward. There just has to be because it's consistent with the character of God in regards to that. So without a word may be won by conduct. That is a great application. That, that phrase, they without a word may be won by the conduct, that I didn't even highlight their, of their wives. I just got they without a word may be won by the conduct. That tells me in my witness for Christ and how I carry myself in this world that I can win people without a word by my conduct when things seem unfair to me or unjust and I'm in a difficult situation with authority over me that I'm called to submit to with reverence to the positions and authorities. Now, in verse 3, we read on here in chapter 3 of 1 Peter. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with looking beautiful. And uh, it's, it's not about, it's not some heavy-handed thing where we want to Throw it on the law like women can't try and look good. They shouldn't try and make themselves look beautiful. That's it's ridiculous. That would be out of context, I believe, in the totality of Scripture. But what the emphasis is, is upon is not a fading glory of the flesh, but an emerging glory of the inward heart of a woman and a man of God as well, in principle. So do not let your adornment be merely outward. So we all care about how we look outward, uh, our appearance outward, what people think of us in our appearance it's just, it's a fact. We, we do care. We want to look good. And we, most people care about how we look. And most people care about how people see us and how we look. But we learn, hopefully, to be comfortable in our own skin with who we are, who, how God's made us, and to be, you know, content in that. And certainly in the Lord and through faith in Jesus Christ, we learn that it, it's about the inward, the inward man that's not perishing though the outward man is perishing the inward man is being renewed daily and the inward woman same thing so again the context is women trying to draw attention to themselves with uh, how they present themselves physically in outside their house or whatever how you want to put it but the issue isn't so much that but it's the issues of the heart so it's not about how we look outward you think about jesus we're coming up to this passage in on in luke on saturday nights where jesus rebukes the pharisees who put on this outward show they, look, they were whitewashed tombs. They put on an outward show, but inside they were dead. And so in the same sense, what we see a similar principle here that a woman could look beautiful outwardly, but that's not the real beauty. The real beauty is of the heart. If you go to Proverbs 31, 
It says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. And, and that's what kind of women, you women want to be here tonight. You want to be the women with the inward beauty. And that's certainly the kind of man we want to be with a man after God's own heart. So it made David so great. Again, you think about the heart and it says that God looks at the heart. He knows the thoughts and the intents and the motives of the heart. And this principle carries right over to David. It's a great example of King David from 1000 BC before the time of Christ, a thousand years. And in many ways, a type of Christ. But when Samuel the prophet came to his father Jesse's house to ordain to anoint the next king of Israel, the current king was good-looking, tall, handsome, and good-looking. In fact, he was the best-looking man in the land. King Saul was considered just to be straight up as handsome as could be. He looked like a king. He carried himself like a king, and he was just that guy. He was that guy. He was tall and stood out in the crowd, and he was handsome. But he didn't have a heart for the Lord. And God rejected him, and he chose David. And in David's case, when Samuel the prophet came to his house, being way down the list of sons, he was the one taking care of the sheep that no one wanted to do. He had the job no one else would do. And he was doing it, and he was faithfully doing it. And he was faithful to the Lord while he was doing it, and he was learning and growing in the knowledge and the heart of the Lord in, in off the radar and off the map in, in a quiet place. And when Samuel the prophet shows up at your house in Bethlehem, it's a big, big deal. It's a big deal. It's a really big deal. He's the voice of the Lord and the oracle of the Lord in all Israel at that time for the people of God's covenant at that time. Like he's the main man spiritually. And if he says Saul's a goner, Saul's a goner. If he says Saul's a king, Saul's a king. And he was concerned about going to the house of Jesse, how people would perceive it. And what kind of political unrest it might make. And there in the house of Jesse, Jesse's there. like, oh my goodness, it's the, it's the prophet Samuel. And he's like, yes, and I'm here to do this. And one of your sons is the king. And remember, the first son that came forward, Jesse goes, oh, this is the guy. This is that guy. This is the varsity quarterback. This is the guy. This is that guy. Man, this was too easy. Easy peasy on this one. And the Lord's like, no. Because man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. This isn't the guy. And he went through all the sons of David, excuse me, the sons of Jesse. And then Saul's like, Samuel's like, oh my goodness. Do you have any other sons? Yeah, he's just out there doing nothing that no one wants to do. Can you call him? And David comes running in the house and the Lord says, this is the one. There goes the oil. Here you go. See, God looks at the heart. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro over the face of the earth, looking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. So I read a text like this for wives. I'm like, well, that's great for wives. But for me, man, at 57, this just reminds me that it's not about what I try and present outwardly for 8 billion people perishing at the same time on the planet. We're all moving toward eternity at different cliques, but we're all moving there. The glory of man is the grass of the field. It grows, it withers, and it fades away. But the word of the Lord abideth forever. We already saw that in this book from Isaiah. Quoted in this book, 1 Peter. So, ladies, it's not about the outward beauty. And, and we, we all want to look good. So, nothing wrong with that, but it's about the heart. It's about the heart. It's about 
incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Ladies, that's to be aspired for in your marriages and for women in general. And again, I look at it like, you know what? God looks at the heart. Nothing could be worse than to be Saul and have outward sacrifices, but be rejected because your heart's not right with God. As a man, I want to be like David and have a heart for the Lord. We read on now verse 5. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God, that's a great insight for marriage, isn't it? The holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So six verses for wives here, and verses 5 and 6 talking about this inward beauty, not the outward passing beauty, but the inward beauty that in former times, so the time of this writing, 2,000 years ago, the reference to Sarah takes us back another 2,000 years to 4,000 years ago to Sarah, the wife of Abraham, who's considered the father of faith in the Bible. And the world considers him the father of the three monotheistic faiths of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Uh, everyone, all three chase their roots back to Abraham, either through Isaac, the son of promise, or Ishmael, the son of the flesh. And depending on how you interpret that, the Muslim world interprets it one way, and Christianity and Judaism interprets it another way according to the living word of God. So Sarah is the wife of the man of faith, the father of faith. It was to her husband that God appeared in Ur the Chaldeans and said, go to this land I'm going to give you to you and your descendants. Sarah, in a culture where having children was highly esteemed, could not have children. The Lord had kept her womb closed. She was unable to have children. And it was a a vulnerability in her life. Sarah was the great woman behind the great man. And Sarah, if you study her life and Abraham's life connected in their marriage, she's actually the driving force behind the man of faith. As Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, he might be the head, but Kay was the neck that turned the head. And in a lot of ways, Sarah, Abraham was the head, but she was the neck that turned the head for good in her husband's life. When they came from Ur the Chaldeans and came to the promised land, and there the famine, and we're all tested by famines. When they were tested by a famine, Abraham said, of course, you are beautiful. And everyone thinks she was outwardly beautiful. We know that. The scriptures affirms that more than once. And she was a very good-looking woman. She was very attractive. And she was his half-sister. Same dad, different moms. So he said, look, you just tell everyone wherever we go, because you're so beautiful, they'll kill me to have you as a wife. Just tell them you're my sister. Most of you know the story, but if you don't, we need to review it. And she's like, okay. So they go to Pharaoh's house, and... Pharaoh's men like, oh, this, this woman has to be in his harem. And yet God blessed Abraham for her sake. And God's brought chasing upon an entire nation to defend Sarah. So as she submitted to her husband to something that you'd say like, well, it wasn't physical abuse. It wasn't verbal abuse. It wasn't sexual abuse or something like that. But it just, okay all right, I'm going to trust your, you know, I'm going to do what you're telling me to do. I'm going to go with that. And she did. God defended her as she trusted in the Lord. 
Then later on, a similar situation happened when she was older in the land of Israel with the, the surrounding people, the Canaanites. Same thing, where Abraham panicked and said, oh, just she's my sister. And then God closed up the womb of all the women of that Canaanite community because of this was going on and did not allow anyone to touch her. So both times when she was exposed, vulnerable in submission to her husband, both times God had her back and God protected her in her vulnerability. Both times God chastened those who might be a threat against her in spite of her husband's poor decision-making. Both times. Now, when the angel Lord came and said that she'd have a child at 90, she laughed and then she was over listening. She laughed, and, and the angel said to Abraham, she laughed. And she said, oh, I didn't laugh. No, but you did. You, know, you don't get into an argument with an angel. When they say you laughed and you laughed, you just say, I did laugh. You know, it's like, I didn't laugh. It's like, no, but you did laugh. <laughs> you know, and the irony, of course, is when Isaac was born a year later, Isaac means laughter, and Sarah said, all will laugh with me, that a woman 90 had a child past the age of childbearing. By the way, in my own testimony, when I got saved in the spring of 87, it began in December of 86. And in December of 86, I read Genesis for the first time. And in reading Genesis, the, the two things that stood out to me are the three women who had children who were previously barren. That for whatever reason, it just really stood out to me. Like, that is very unusual. I wasn't married or anything. I just thought, that is really interesting. And then that all things work together for good, what Joseph's brothers met against him, Genesis 50, 20, that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So I finished the book of Genesis, like, okay, what do I do next? Like, these women all had children who couldn't have children, and these bad things that happened bad could be good. That's what I got out of Genesis. But I I thought about when I read Genesis, because I read Genesis before I read the Gospel of John for the first time. Like many people, I'm like, I need help. I'm going to start the Bible. I'm going to read beginning i got through genesis i read the whole book and that really stood out to me and it has always stood out to me about how god cares personally about events and circumstances in our lives like that god would care about three women who are barren and through their barrenness he did great things to bring a great nation and bring the promised one the messiah jesus through the seed of sarah and the son of promise isaac two thousand years later like i mean sarah is crucial to everything the savior of the world comes through the genealogy through Sarah. And sure, she tried to do the surrogate mother thing with Hagar to produce a son for her husband Abraham that way, which was disastrous. Even when Abraham said, oh, that, this, that Hagar or that Ishmael would stand before you, and the Lord's like, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. Your flesh is never recognized by me. I am the God of promises, and it's the promises that save, and it's the promises that I honor. And then, of course, when Isaac was born, son of laughter, and his dedication was taking, his dedication and all that's taking place there, Ishmael, who was 12 at the time, was mocking him. And that's when, of course, Sarah said to Abram, cast out the bondwoman, she's got to go. And Abram's like, I don't know, man, I like my 12-year-old. It's like just that fun time of life, you know, like parents, 12 years old, that's like a fun time with your kids now you can take ski trips and stuff now you can do little league you know 12 is a fun age right it should be it's like in 12 years invested in this son even though the circumstances were awkward at the dinner table right agar sarah it's awkward 
But you get to look and be like, well, it was your idea, you know, so it couldn't be that awkward, but still for 12 years. And the Lord's like, listen, what did God say? Listen, ladies, listen, what did God say to Abram when Sarah said, cast out the bondwoman? He said, listen to your wife. Man, more husbands should hear the Lord say, listen to your wife. I listened to my wife. Oh, I had something, uh, I, I, you know, I had something last week. I'm like, I need to make this public statement about this just to put this in order in this way. This is this. Like, I wrote this Instagram. It's perfectly worded. I think this is kind of make it clear for people certain things. And she goes, you don't want to send that. Oh, okay. Can I redeem it? No, no, just don't send it. It'll play out a different way. Okay. Blip. Listen to your wife. Of course, I have a great wife. My wife's very wise and very humble. She is this woman. You know, the story when I, I was courting Jennifer in that epic three-week courtship, <laughs> I busted out Proverbs 31. I read it. I go, what do you think of that? And she goes, it's beautiful. So what are you doing the rest of your life? You know? It's like, she's like, she's just like it's beautiful. I'm like, you really think it? She goes, yeah, it's beautiful. I'm like, all right. Okay. All right. So what, what do you think? You, me, like... You know, like that, you know, like, you know, like, and March 12th came shortly after that. I did get that virtuous woman and I'm blessed for that. And I'm great for that. And I should listen to my wife more often. And I do, I do listen to my wife. That's a good word that God gave Abraham. And what's radical about Sarah, before we move on from Sarah to husbands real quick, is that. In Hebrews 11, in the Hall of Faith, where all those great people of faith are listed, when it says Abraham obeyed God and he went not knowing where he was going, Hebrews 11, 8, and, you know, Abraham this and Abraham that. I mean, she's, under, she's with her husband, so she's to become one, so she's part of that package deal. But then God says, by faith, she counted him faithful who promised it. She's in the Hall of Faith for counting God faithful who promised it. And in those, both those times when her husband kind of exposed her, if you will, her nakedness, if you will, God's like, I got your back. And you guys, you just better watch it before I strike you down. When she submitted to her husband under difficult circumstances, God had her back. And even when she laughed at the promises of God, she received that reproof and named her son Laughter a year later. (laughs) And when she said, there's no way that this divided house is going to function. And she said, you better get her out. And and Abraham's, oh, man. And, And God says, you listen to your wife and you get her out. And that's that. And the first crime that we have in the Bible is Abraham crying over the death of his wife, Sarah. Six verses, building and moving towards Sarah as an example. And I praise the Lord for it. Ladies, whether you're married or not, divorced, uh, widowed, this is the woman you want to be as it applies to you. And men, I don't need to be feminine and a wife to apply the principles of these passages to my life. I see these principles in my life. The principles of under authority, in authority. I see how this holds me accountable for what God holds my wife accountable for. It holds me accountable to nurture my wife and build up my wife to help facilitate these things and attributes and attitudes and, and character in my wife. I don't want to provoke my wife and bring out the worst in my wife. 
I want to build up my wife and encourage her to help bring these attributes out of her life. I want to be part, I want to complement the winning process of the Holy Spirit in her life. I don't want to be something that she's, that's an agitation against the good that the Lord wants to do. I want to be part of the blessing. And so do you, husbands. And for you men that are single, today is today. It is what it is. Pray for the marriages of the church. Pray for the marriages of people you know that I think, I think the most amazing thing about marriage is that two human beings can live together. I stop. That's a period. Because we are prone toward conflict. And I think the amazing thing about marriage is that even in a fallen nature, the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve can, can work through things and, and enjoy the journey together. Now, the previous generations, they would stay married just because they stayed married. And, of course, marriage has been redefined and devaluated in our society over the last 30, 40 years for various reasons. But it's like marriage isn't something to be endured as some rite of passage that never ends in a negative way or some hazing incident that goes on forever. Marriage is meant to be something so beautiful and so wonderful. And from my perspective, I just think it's important that we each accept responsibility for our role in that to be the best husband I could be and my wife can be the best wife she can be. And I can pray for her along those lines and she can pray for me along those lines. The basic principle that we want to build each other up is, is critical when we come to marriage, that we want to do those things that build up others and edify them. Now we have one more verse for tonight. It's the husbands. Husbands, likewise, verse 7, dwell with them, your wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So as husbands, and there are husbands here, we are to dwell with our wives with understanding. So often husbands might say, I just don't get it. I don't get her. I don't get this at all. It's like a Rubik's Cube with no resolution, my wife. You know, and you're thinking, maybe you think that. I never thought that. But, uh, I mean, we all have different personalities. We all have different strengths and weaknesses. And in the marriage, the husbands are told to dwell with their wives with understanding. And to understand people, you need to listen to people. In all the training I'm doing with the U.S. Olympic Committee and the coaching development and working with the People Academy and these other people that are involved with the elite level coaching development with the USOC and Team USA, it became very apparent to me when we were in North Carolina a few months ago where God was going to work in my life because one of the core things they're working on for the next two years for coaches is to listen to listen that the old school coaching like my way or the highway that's so long gone and in this generation you need to listen and you need to to hear people out and we need to understand that just because we're saying something doesn't mean people are understanding and hearing what we're saying which of course the parable of the soils makes that clear as well in the new testament but to listen more, so often we're so focused on what we want to say, we're not even listening to what people are saying in response to us or just in dialoguing with us. I talked about going to Chile for all those years, that the Chileans like to sit down and just talk for hours, and you need to listen, especially with English second language and or Spanish second language at the same time. And you listen. 
So husbands, we're told to dwell with our wives with understanding. That means listening. Some wives will tell you very quickly what they're thinking. Some wives, it might take weeks to read it and try and crack the code of what's really going on. We're all different. We're all unique. As a husband, I, I talk about priorities. The first priority is me and the Lord. The second priority is me and my wife. I've got two covenants, the vertical one with the Lord and the horizontal one with my wife. Then I've got a stewardship of my children, which has changed because honor your father and mother means different things to them now that they're adults than it did when they're younger. And it means different things for me as their father, but still there's great responsibility. That's a stewardship, raising children as unto the Lord. And what are you going to do, right? So, and then there's the stewardship of our home, the finances, then there's the pastoring of the church and the responsibilities there, ministry calling. I'm just describing all of our lives in some way or another. This is your order as well, priorities. For me, then it's the witness in society with working with the USA Olympic Serve Team. And then it's a witness to the world and being involved with Team USA and the entire Olympic program. But before there's just outreach to the world, there's the vertical relationship with the Lord, and then there's the covenant home with my wife. And you can just cut these branches off going backwards. And if you've got my wife and I at 60 in assisted living together, that will do just fine. Because like Job said, naked I came into the world, naked I'll go. You know, from the dust I came to the dust I'll return. And Paul writing Timothy said, we brought nothing in, we're not taking anything out. It's about people, it's about relationships. And... Look at my parents. So they've been divorced for 40 years, and my mom still takes care of my dad. Mom, Goldie needs dog food, and I can't come down to Carlsbad for a week. And I know she had enough dog food for four days. That's my dad's dog in assisted living. All right, I got to go to the doctor down there. I'll stop by, and I'll bring Goldie her dog food. And they've been divorced since 1976. They're still yoked through the kids, right? My brother's 60. I'm 57. My sister's 51. Let's get along. Let's go for the first fruits. Let's go for plan A. We're happily heading to the sunset. That's better. And my role as a husband is to dwell with understanding. Now, for women and single, whatever your application is, to dwell with people with understanding, to just understand other people, to take time to understand them and understand their perspective. Walking on Huntington Pier last night and seeing the entire world on display with at least 10 different languages uh, being spoken walking on the pier. Which is true. If you know that, it's very true. I mean, Huntington Beach is a destination for global money. And that's why it's booming, booming, booming. The world's are. You sit in Pacific City, you will hear many, many languages, all the v- different dialects of Eastern Europe. You'll hear a lot of Arabic type of Farsi type of languages and a lot of Asian languages. And you'll hear them. And I'm looking, I'm walking, you know, I walked out to Ruby's and back, and it's like, isn't that the same Huntington Pier I came to in the 70s, surfing WSA, right? It's a little different. But it is what it is, and the Lord's brought the world here. And I thought, you know, I, I, I need to understand these people. I need, to, I need to understand their worldview. I need to think how they think so I can relate to them. Nothing's going to change. It's not like... We're going to go back to that dumpy motel that was there south of the pier on PCH where Pacific City is and that dumpy coffee shop that was right next to it where we used to stay when we did the Caton Contest in the 70s. That's never coming back. It's Pacific City and Pasea and the globalism. So I might as well figure out, like, have a heart for people. We might understand them. To listen, 
and observe, to have understanding. So as a husband, I need to dwell with my wife with understanding and give her honor because she's my wife. And I'm called to build her up. I'm to cleanse her and wash her with the washing of the word of God. The Bible tells me in Ephesians 5. I'm to honor my wife and to treasure and nurture my wife. God has made her bound to me and there's a spiritual force at work in that. That even though I might frustrate her, she still loves me because God has made her bound to me. That's the way it was in the dawn of creation and that's the way it is now. And she's not a weaker vessel in the sense like she's less than, she's feminine. And she should be. And I'm masculine and I should be too. That's how God made us. Have you not read, Jesus said, how he both made them, male and female, and the two become one? How he made them, created, male and female, gender, and the two become one, marriage? Jesus said that. Have you not read that? Yeah, that's how it's supposed to be. So we're heirs together of the grace of life in our marriage. My wife and I are heirs together of the grace of life. Like we're in the trust together. We have a trust together, a living trust, and, you know, it's together. It's together. We're heirs of eternal things together. And then that last exhortation that our prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, our prayers can be very much hindered if we don't dwell with our wives with sensitivity. My wife has been so great in all the experiences we've been through on the East Coast, the West Coast, all the different seasons. And only rarely did she ever, you know, really just say, you know, we need to have a timeout here. It had a lot of credibility when she called the timeout, by the way. But I tell men in ministry and I tell ambitious men and because men are always builders and are always fighting wars. That's why it says in Deuteronomy that when you get married, you're exempt from war and business for a year so you can learn how to please your wife. Because men always have another conflict, and they've always got another business plan. You ever notice that? Men always have another thing to fight over somebody with, and they've always got another business plan. That's why Deuteronomy says that before it talks about divorce. It says you're exempt from those things that you can learn to please your wife. In other words, dwell with her with understanding and know your wife in the first year, and then maybe it'll all work out well. But if you don't make time for your wife the first year, you may never understand her, and then you don't get a good foundation. So it's understanding. And I have this saying about when the wives aren't happy. When your wife goes on strike, it's like the trash man going on strike in Los Angeles. It's going to get resolved. It all stops. Los Angeles stops when the trash men do not come for the trash. When the air conditioning doesn't work here on Saturday night and it's 90 degrees at service time, oh, it's like we're calling Sean like, it's, you got to fix this. When they had 90 degrees on Sunday morning, you got to fix it. And everybody agrees today, there are AC people here today fixing the AC because there are no churches, there are no congregations a week from now if we do not fix the AC. And I say it's the same things with your wives not being happy. If your wife is not happy and you do not dwell with her with understanding and humble yourself and love her and nurture her, it's going to be like the trash man going on strike in Los Angeles. The whole thing stops. You cannot function. We are, as men, we're not meant to function when we're disengaged from our wives. And men who are disengaged from their wives, they do themselves great harm because their prayers are hindered. And you might as well be praying to that stone wall that heats up on a hot day without an AC. Because your prayers are going nowhere. And I want my prayers to go somewhere. 
on behalf of God's work in my life, my wife's life, my adult children's life, my grandkids' life, this church, the kids I'm involved with, with the junior program, the adults I'm involved with, the Olympic program. I want my prayers to matter. And I just, I don't take care of my wife so my prayers are answered. I take care of my wife because it's a, you know, they say happy wife, happy life, right? I mean, boy, that's simple theology. And it's true. But I love my wife. And it's not a have to, it's a get to. I love my wife. And I praise the Lord for 30 years uh, being married. So I just leave us with this passage on marriage tonight, these seven verses. Women, the reason God gives you six chapters is you're smart enough, sharp enough, and you can handle it. Guys, the reason God gives us one verse, six verses versus one, is because that's about all we can handle. I told you, why, Jennifer, tell me what I really need to hear, and she does. I'm like, I don't want to hear that. Can you give me a little less at one time? You know, Olympic training's like, hey, Kendra, ask people to tell you what they really think. Okay, honey, tell me what you really think. I'm like, wow, that's kind of like... Women, God's wired you to handle six verses tonight and gives you Sarah as an example. Men, he tells us, don't be stupid. Slow down. Think about your wife and her needs and others in general and their needs. And maybe your prayers will actually have power. But if you don't, they won't. It's that simple. It's the living word. So, Lord, we thank you for this passage tonight, your word tonight in First Peter. 